I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This is Life Vows Sashin, January 19th, first full day talk. I am taking refuge in the Sangha. It's been a practice of not knowing and making mistakes and uh, being uncomfortable, which is also known as learning. So thank you all for practicing. Maybe you too have been uncomfortable this first day of Sashin. We are entrusting ourselves to the Sangha, supporting each other in this Sashin. And of course, the first day or two is always a little turbulent. Well, nothing is always anything, but usually. So I want to acknowledge just how stirred up we might be from current events, busy lives, especially as we make this transition, this transition from news and media and constant stimulation to settling down. So if we were on an airplane, there would be an announcement to go ahead and fasten your seatbelt. And so I think that can just mean return to the body, return to this breath. Or maybe the schedule is our seatbelt. Sometimes I wish I could just fasten a seatbelt around my mind and just hold it there in presence. But that is not how it works. If your mind doesn't just stay belted in, but is wandering about the cabin, that is okay. And that's how it is for most of us. Do you remember when we used to fly on airplanes and there would sometimes be a toddler on the plane and they just need to run up and down the aisle? And a lot of times they're like smiling and flirting and they're just having a great time with their newfound ability to ambulate. And you can just watch your mind like that. You can just watch your mind like a passenger, like those grandmas on the plane that just gaze at those children running up and down the aisle with so much love. You can look at your mind's antics just like that. And I suspect this metaphor applies too to when that toddler is crying on the plane. There is no escape from that. <laughs> Toddlers are just learning that Sometimes it's hard to be a person. What we can do in that situation is accept, to, is accept and try to find that patience within ourselves, that understanding, the loving kindness to extend to that toddler and to their parent. We can extend the same patience and loving kindness to our own restless body and mind. Can you find the spaciousness in your heart to just be with however your body or mind is right now? It doesn't matter how many times you bring yourself back to the present. It really doesn't. There's not a scorecard for that. Being present is just always available, always waiting for you. This moment is wide open and there's room for whatever's here. What a relief. What a relief that we are right here, right now. Slightly different right here for each of us, 
Here at Great Vows and Monastery, we sit on the beautiful land of the Chinookan peoples. And we sit in this beautiful building that was once a school and still is in some respects. We sit with the ancestors, all the generations of people who have carried our Dharma lineage forward from India, China, and Japan. And we sit with each of our own inheritances from our nation, from our families, and our own individual circumstances. This moment includes all of us and everyone and everything that has ever been and ever will be. Everything is right here, right now, together in this moment. Where else would it be? Given that, how can our story of what's going on ever possibly resemble what's going on, what's really going on? So here's a koan, case 20 from the Book of Equanimity. Master Dizang asked the visiting Buddhist philosopher, Fayan, where are you going now? Fayan answered, I'm resuming my pilgrimage. Dizang asked, why do you go on pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. Dizang said, not knowing is most intimate. Hearing these words, Fayan had an opening experience. Koans are stories of teachings through relationships. And these get passed down through the generations and lineages of Zen. These are vessels that carry highly concentrated teachings in just a tiny few words. And you can carry them around for years and they reveal more all the time. They may seem impenetrable, but they are about our life about your life. Not knowing is most intimate. This is a koan in part about someone who is traveling. Remember traveling? Harken back to the before times when we could travel. Maybe you've been to another country before or another culture. Or harken back to the first few weeks of COVID when masks and six feet of space and no touching became our new culture. When we travel to another place or suddenly everything is unfamiliar, there's a new attention that can arise, an openness. Our usual habitual filters of this is important, this is not important, they don't apply. We don't know. Is that a new kind of siren I'm hearing? Is, is that a police or an ambulance siren? How much are these coins? How much are these pink or orange pieces of paper worth? When we don't know, we can't go on autopilot. So we pay attention to everything. We can see everything fresh as it arises. To see this unrepeatable moment with clarity and kindness is aligning with the truth. If we're able to see clearly, then our actions flow from that. 
So I want to share an example of this, a person who embodied this openness of mind and heart. It is possible. This is one of my exemplars. And in this vows session, we will be inquiring about your exemplars in the days to come. This also, to my mind, is someone who embodies the characteristics of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva means awakening being. We chant Shantideva's way of the bodhisattva every evening. It's so beautiful. A commitment and a vow to relieve suffering and to awaken in order to help awaken all beings. Bodhisattvas are like saints or archetypes. There are lots of bodhisattvas, but there are four main ones in our tradition. They're often associated with the four elements and with certain instruments and roles. Jizo is one, the bodhisattva of vows, of earth, is affiliated with our lineage here. I'll be talking about Jizo in the coming days. Kanzeon or Kanon is the Japanese translation of the Sanskrit Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin in Chinese. Kanzeon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. She's often depicted with a vessel of water the waters of compassion. So this exemplar, this actual human being I want to share about was, I believe, an embodiment of Kanzeon. Carl Rogers was an influential psychologist in the mid-20th century. I like to call him the other Mr. Rogers. Carl Rogers was born in 1902 in Oak Park, Illinois the fourth of six children. He came from a white, educated, conservative, middle-class family of devout and fundamentalist Pentecostal Christians. His parents enforced a strict religious and ethical environment. According to Rogers, his parents, quote, did not dance, play cards, attend movies, smoke, drink, or show any sexual interest. His parents expected their children to maintain high moral standards, work hard, and limit expressions of emotion. Despite having five siblings, Carl Rogers often felt lonely. As a boy, he was a sickly child and was perceived by his family to be oversensitive. He described himself as shy, solitary, dreamy, and often lost in fantasy. Occasionally, Carl would be teased fiercely on this frailty, which would lead him to retreat into himself and into his own world. He often spoke of himself as a lonely child who was permitted few opportunities to make friends outside the family. He learned to read well before he was five years old, and his loneliness led him to read all the books he could, including a dictionary and an encyclopedia. He skipped kindergarten, which turned out to be another experience of disconnection and loneliness, being so much younger and so much more advanced than the other children. In 1914, the Rogers family 
bought a farm in the neighboring town. They did this in part to further shield their children from the temptations of suburban life and social connection. So at 12 years old, he took solace in nature. He began to learn about the power of observation. He became an expert on the great night flying moths which inhabited the woods around the family farm. He learned how to raise them and had quite a moth rearing operation. Of this time in his life, he said, I was now more consciously a complete outsider, an onlooker in anything involving personal relationships. I believe my intense scientific interest in collecting and rearing the great night-flying moths was without a doubt a partial compensation for the lack of intimate sharing. He and his brothers also learned how to raise cows, sheep, chickens, and other farm animals from reading a huge tome on livestock feed he learned all about the scientific method, about control and experimental groups. His life experience happened to cultivate curiosity and don't know mind. He learned to observe well enough to create a supportive environment and allow things to metamorphose all on their own. He completed high school, completed a degree in history, and in college, he started enjoying a social life. He went into seminary school, but decided against that. He didn't feel right about telling people what to do with their lives. At 22, he married Helen Elliott, whom he says was the, was the first person with whom he shared any sort of, quote, caring, close, sharing relationship. He says in their first couple of years, they learned that the elements in the relationship that seemed impossible to share, the secretly disturbing, dissatisfying elements, those are the most rewarding to share. This was a hard, risky, frightening thing to learn, and we have relearned it many, many times since. It was a rich and developing experience for each of us. Professionally, he started working with troubled children in Rochester at that time, in the 30s and 40s, the way that went was you gathered a ton of information from the patient, you made an expert diagnosis, and then you told them or their parents exactly what they should do. And he said that in that environment where he lived in the city where he worked, he, he began to see the effects of his advice. And so often it wasn't good. So he really had to rethink this equation. He was influenced in a different way of doing things by one of the early matriarchs of the social work profession, Jesse Taft. So that's just a little shout out to the social work profession. I'm a social worker. and She's an interesting person as an aside. She, um, she has quite a story herself of being an early uh, important social worker and she and her lifetime partner uh, adopted some children together in like 1918 or 20. 
maybe a little later than that, maybe the late 20s. Jesse Taft helped him begin to listen. He began to listen to what was underneath what people were saying, to listen for the feeling, to try to feel into the experience of the person, and to connect with what might be unspoken. This became known as empathic listening. Here's a quote from Carl Rogers. We think we listen, but very rarely do we listen with real understanding, true empathy. Yet listening of this very special kind is one of the most potent forces for change that I know. We think we listen, but very rarely do we listen with real understanding, true empathy. Yet listening of this very special kind is one of the most potent forces for change that I know. Perhaps you have had someone listen to you like that. Maybe bring to mind that person who offered that to you and what it was like, what it felt like. It's such a gift, isn't it? It's a gift that we can give to each other. It's both active and receptive listening. We're all capable of it. And we're capable of giving it to ourselves, making this kind of space for ourselves this gentle, kind attention. He also said, if I let myself really understand another person, I might be changed by that understanding. And we all fear change. So as I say, it is not an easy thing to permit oneself to understand an individual. If I let myself really understand another person, I might be changed by that understanding. And we all fear change. So as I say, it's not an easy thing to permit oneself to understand an individual. It's hard to communicate just how completely he revolutionized psychology as we know it. The importance of relationship and presence in a therapeutic encounter is now taken for granted. But Carl Rogers was one of the people who was able to transform an entire professional field that was not open to his ideas. He endeavored to cultivate a way of being genuine, which he called congruent. Being congruent is just being. Not a state, but a process. Participating. I went outside today, and I could see that I was reminded that everything was just being itself. Participating. The ladybug and the spider, the birds and the trees, they're totally congruent. The hummingbirds are not equivocating about what they should be doing. They are genuinely hummingbirds. 
The best description of incongruence I found is this gap between the real self and the ideal self, the gap between the I am and the I should. This underpins so much of the inner critic work that we do here. Maybe you can hear your own inner critic right now. What's it saying about what you should do, who you should be, what kind of experience you should have? In his words, to open one's spirit to what is going on now and discover in that present process whatever structure it appears to have. To open one's spirit to what is going on now and discover in that present process whatever structure it appears to have. That's awfully, that's very open, isn't it? So to help people find their way to being in this way, he felt that creating an environment of what he called unconditional positive regard would free people to be who they are. And he called this prizing, which is really just another way of saying he was able to appreciate people. Or like my Dharma grandfather, my Zumi Roshi, encouraged people to appreciate your life. Carl Rogers says, prizing or loving and being prized or loved is experienced as very growth enhancing. A person who is loved appreciatively, not possessively, blooms and develops his own unique self. The person who loves non-possessively is himself enriched. This at least has been my experience. When he talks about loving or prizing non-possessively, he means without an agenda. He means without any attachment to how, how things turn out, how the person turns out. They're, they're free. He was also able to focus this prizing on himself. He says, I have come to prize each emerging facet of my experience of myself. I would like to treasure the feelings of anger and tenderness and shame and hurt and love and anxiety and giving and fear. All the positive and negative reactions that crop up. I would like to treasure the ideas that emerge. Foolish, creative, bizarre, sound, trivial. All are part of me. I like the behavioral impulses, appropriate, crazy, achievement-oriented, sexual, murderous. I want to accept all of these feelings, ideas, and impulses as an enriching part of me. I don't expect to act on all of them, but when I accept them all, I can be more real. My behavior, therefore, will be much more appropriate to the immediate situation. On the basis of my experience, I have found that if I can help bring about a climate marked by genuineness, prizing, and understanding, 
and then exciting things happen. Surprising. I see a parallel Zen expression of this unconditional positive regard in a few ways. But I really love the positive expression of the sixth precept they use at Zen Mountain Monastery. See the perfection. See the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. This is the precept about gossip, which I may be talking also about later this week, about a vow of non-complaining and non-gossip. We phrase the positive expression of that precept here as being understanding and sympathetic. So we can be practicing that in this way. This is one of my favorite Carl Rogers quotes. People are just as wonderful as sunsets if you let them be. When I look at a sunset, I don't find myself saying, soften the orange a bit on the right-hand corner. I don't try to control a sunset. I watch with awe as it unfolds. And our practice is a way to embody that. We can be understanding and sympathetic with our own first day of Sashin experience. So please find this curiosity and open-heartedness for your own experience. I could say, allow the transformation from caterpillar to great night-flying moth to occur in its own time. But I could also say, appreciate the caterpillar and appreciate the chrysalis and appreciate the process that you are. Bringing to mind the bodhisattva of compassionate listening and her exemplar, Carl Rogers, I encourage you to treat yourself this way on the cushion, out in the world, to appreciate your life, to not know, to open up a large space in your heart for yourself and for the people in your friend groups, to practice listening and appreciating in this way if you're interacting with other people this week. See the perfection. It's right here, right now. Where else could it possibly be? Thank you.